Turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis in chapter 24. Did we lose our TV? Right, well, I see that. You've been promoted to captain. I, this one's not working now. I need my notes. All right, well, we'll see how I do. For some reason... There we go. Thank you, Lord. Okay, so I'm going to be teaching this this morning, so you'll get it in a minute. But uh, thank you, Lord, so much for working through technical difficulties, even when we have them. You're involved in those as well. In Jesus' name, thank you. So Genesis chapter 24. I'm trying to practice what I preach before I teach it, you know. Genesis chapter 24 Sorry, there's an announcement. There is a ladies' fellowship coming up on February, what is it? February 9th, and it will be here from 6 to 8 p.m. Thank you, Dana. Bring a snack. All right, Genesis chapter 24. As we come to Genesis chapter 24, I want you to remember the context of this passage. God is creating a nation from among all the nations of the world. And he's chosen a man by the name of Abraham. Now, Abraham, there was really nothing special about him. He wasn't pure. He was from a family of idol makers. And yet God chose to pick him, to make promises to him. And yet Abraham had to take steps of faith to obtain those promises. He called him out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, which you may not know this, was the place where they first invented the hot tub. And so you might think, well, what's the big deal? He's leaving one desert to go to another desert, and who wants to do either? And yet he was leaving a place of luxury. And so God called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and as he arrived there, he was little by little being prepared for the next step of faith. And so he, he struggled. And I don't know about you guys, but I can relate with people who struggle, not with people who just easily succeed. And yet Abraham... In his later years, around 100 years old, his wife gives birth to his son, Isaac. And Isaac is given to him as a gift of God, and Isaac means laughter, which is funny because when God told him, you're going to have a son at an old age, he laughed, and his wife laughed in unbelief. Like, how is that even going to be possible? I'm almost 100 years old. How can I give birth? And yet, it came to pass because guess what? God fulfills his promises. And so later in life, at about 127, Sarah passes. She goes to sleep eternally. And as she dies, Abraham, dealing with his grief, purchases land. And when he purchases the land, then he buries his wife and he grieves for her. He grieves audibly. He weeps over the loss of his better half. And as he grieves the loss of his better half, he comes to some closure and then he moves on to the next project because that's what guys do. Frankly, you know, we, we, we get something done and we move on to our next task. And so his focus comes off of making his wife happy and taking care of her. And he starts to think, what am I gonna do in order to get a bride for my son? Well, what do we do? We, we say, okay, go on dates. And we send our kids out and they go with questionable characters into dark places and watch movies and, and do this and that. Like that's our culture, right? You're laughing, but that's what we literally do. We go, oh, this is safe. No bars hold, nobody's watching. Turn the lights off and watch a romantic comedy. But that's what we do. And for some of us, we have other parameters, but dating doesn't look the same in Western culture as it does in Eastern culture. And we might even say it's barbaric. But what Abraham's gonna do, is he's not gonna send Isaac to the world to go find a date. What does he know? He's a kid. And honestly, what kids don't know. 
I, I'm so thankful that the Lord kept me uh, from insecure. You know, I was insecure and I had all these other reasons, but I think that the Lord used those to keep me from dating until I was ready. And even when I got married, I don't think I was ready. But the Lord decided I was. And so here we have uh, Abraham looking out for his son. And he also knows that God's promised to give him many descendants. Can't have descendants without more than just one of the sexes. You got to have the other one. You got to have a marriage. And then you got to have the fruit of the marriage, the children. And so Abraham looks to his oldest, most trusted servant, Eleazar, and he sends him to find a wife for his son. And so in Genesis 24, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, in case you didn't know what that means. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh. Don't ever say that to me. None of you. Do not ever say that to me. It's the most awkward thing ever. I'm not, no. So he says, put your hand under my thigh. Why is he doing that? This is how they would uh, have someone submit under their authority. And if you do a little bit of research on it, it gets even worse. But I'm not going there because it's just awkward. And so uh, I'll make enough awkward uh, moments on my own. I don't need to read those out. So in Genesis 24, he says, Put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of, Can of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country, to my family, and take a wife to my son, for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not. In other words, absolutely not. Do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, to your descendants, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. In other words, you don't have to help him. God's going to fulfill what he said he would do. And so the question I have for you is why not? Why not go back to the land of Ur of the Chaldeans? You're sending your servant back there why don't you, why, why don't you take a, a wife from the people of the Canaanites? Well, it goes back to Genesis in chapter 9. If you remember the table of nations there, it's after, um, it's after the flood. There was three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And what it says is of the descendants of Ham, there will be a son by the name of Canaan. Sound familiar? They're in the land of the Canaanites. And it says, cursed be Canaan. Of course, there's a reason for that. There was an instance that happened, another awkward moment in Genesis 9, where uh, Ham went into the tent of his father, saw him naked. Many authors, many biblical scholars think that other things happened, but essentially because he looked upon the nakedness of his father, he was cursed. And so curses and blessings in the Bible aren't just arbitrary. They mean things. Words mean things. And so with the curse and the blessing, God oftentimes ends up following up on that curse or that blessing. And so at the same time, it says in Genesis 9, 25 through 27, it says there, blessed be the God of Shem. Now from the line of Shem comes the family, you might know them, Eber, eventually to Abraham and his brother Nahor. And so they live in Ur of the Chaldeans, and Nahor is Abraham's brother. So he's seeking a wife for Isaac, not just arbitrarily because I know my family, but because God's blessing is upon the family of Shem. And so Abraham sends his servant back to his homeland, but he's also going to send him back to his father's house. He's seeking a wife from the line of Shem, believing the blessing that's on the family of Shem. 
And so, back here we see in verse 5, he says, can I take your son with me? And he says, no. He makes a statement of faith, a prophetic statement even. He says, God will provide. He'll send you where you need to go. But this whole passage, the point is, is that God will provide Isaac a bride. And I would encourage you that for your sons and daughters, God, if you will ask him, if you will trust his way, will provide a spouse for your descendants. He will provide a spouse. You don't have to go and use all of man's ways. You don't have to be at the right place. You don't have to go to the right place. You can trust God with this. What more important thing in your life do you need to trust God with than with marriages? In Corinthians, Paul writes to uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. If your spouse is someone that draws you away from the Lord because they don't love the Lord, it's going to create problems and friction. Yet when there's unity in the marriage, that Jesus is that third strand in the three-stranded cord, you're going to get pulled, both of you, in the same direction. As you're both trusting the Lord separately, he's going to always pull you towards himself and towards each other. And so with that in mind, here we have um, Abraham sending his servant to get a wife for his son. And in verse 9, it says, So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. They're making a covenant. And I believe that part of this swearing to do this thing the way Abraham wants it's because, number one, Abraham won't be going. And number two, Abraham's concerned that he might die before the servant comes back. He's sending him back to the land where he came from, which is about 30 days camel journey, which is not quick. And so he's like, I don't know if I'm going to make it much longer. Let's make sure that there's a bride taken care of for Isaac. But he's not really trusting the servant. He's trusting his God to direct the servant. And so in verse 10, the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed for all his master's goods were in his hand. He arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. So he takes 10 camels for the journey, no doubt to carry the dowry. In this culture, if you were to betroth your son or daughter, you would have a dowry to pay. And then also... <clears throat> that he may return with the expectation, the bride, and return with whatever she might bring. Imagine this, he might get married and the wife might bring back a bunch of stuff. They need as many travel bags as possible and servants. So the way that he's going is he's going to Hebron from Haran, excuse me, from Haran, from Hebron to Haran, and then he's also going to go, you'll notice, over and over again, he's going to go prayerfully. His journey is going to be, no doubt, filled with logistics. But it looks like he's going to pray an awful lot. But then he's also trusting that the God of Abraham, his master, would prepare the way for the bride. And so verse 11, he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well, of water at evening time. This is the time when women go out to draw water. And then he said, he's going to pray here. Oh, Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one that you've appointed for your servant Isaac. He's saying this because this is the time of day where they would go get water. Same time, same station, every day. And the young ladies, the virgins of the family, would go out to get the water. That was their chore list. And so he's going to a practical place to find a bride, but he's going to look for a bride with character. 
He says, Lord, if you'd provide, would you provide a woman to come and get this water and then offer, when I ask for water, that she would offer water to me and also to my camels. Now, this is above and beyond. This, he doesn't say to the woman later, will you water me and my camels? Because that would kind of be stacking the deck. Like, Lord, I'm praying for this, but I'm basically going to tell her all the things I wanted to do. He's saying, Lord, the person who I ask for a drink, would she also, at her own free will, offer to water my camels? Now, not every woman's going to offer to water your camels. It's like when it's cold out this time of year, and your wife, you're not expecting her to offer to fill your gas tank, because it's cold. Hey, little tip, offer to fill your wife's gas tank when it's cold out. This will go well for you. This is how you show your bride unfailing love. I'm not the most romantic, but I can be very practical. <clears throat> A camel, when he is thirsty, will drink up to 20 gallons of water. So it's one thing to give a little drink to Eleazar, but to fill the camels up at the quick stop is no quick stop. 10 camels, remember that? 10 times 20 is 200 stinking gallons. 200, just for one excursion. And so she comes out and it says here, by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. So verse 15, and it happened before he had finished speaking or praying that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now, this is a spoiler. If you want to build suspense into a story, you don't give that sentence right there. You wait for it to play out. But if you're like me, and someone's telling you a story, I'm always like, get to the point. Like you're building this, I don't care about all the details. And my wife hates that because she's a storyteller. She likes to build up the story and then give you the release at the end. And here's what happened. But in this, it seems like they broke that rule. They get rid of the suspense. They give the spoiler. They destroy it. And yet the reason I believe that the Lord does this is to let us know that as he's praying, before he's done praying, the Lord brings just the right woman around. And so everything after this is going to lead up to what we already know. But guess what? Eleazar didn't know. All he knew is what's getting ready to take place. And so, now the young woman was very beautiful, excuse me, <coughs> and behold, a virgin no man had known her. I'm going to mute this real quick. And behold, no man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and she came up. And the servant, notice that he's not just praying, but he's also acting on his prayer. He's taking advantage of the situation that he has prayed for, and he's basically fishing. He's, he's throwing his lure out there going, hey, is this the one? Hey, is this the one? And as he does, it says, the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. That's all he asks for. So she said, drink, my Lord. And then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. This isn't coincidence, folks. This isn't luck. This, isn't, this wouldn't be a common occurrence. This is God's providence. And so you can imagine in Eliezer him going, this could be the one. He's getting excited. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough ran back to the well to draw water and drew and continued to draw as the idea for all of his camels. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. She might put out one canister of water and walk away. 
And that's not the one, that's the way he looks at it. And so, it was when the camels had finished drinking, in other words, they were satisfied. It reminds me of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It says that they were all sitting there and the Lord divided them and then he made lanes and then he broke the bread and gave thanks for it and then he passed it out and he didn't just give them a little to eat. He fed them and it says until they were all satiated. They were glutted. They were, you know, patting their bellies going, oh, I can't eat another bite, but I kind of want to. It was like buffet. The Lord satisfies the weary soul. He doesn't just give a little morsel. He gives enough until we are overflowing. And so here we see this woman. She is in the character of God. They finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing 10 shekels of gold and then said, whose daughter are you? Right, the next phase. Can't just be a person that gives me water. Can't just be a person that gives water to the camels. They gotta be satisfied. But also, remember, there's another occurrence here. It's gotta be someone from the family of Abraham, the line of Shem. And so he says, whose family are you from? And of course, we already know. But he's, she says, um, he says, tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel. That should ring a bell if you go back just one chapter because in uh, the end of, actually, two chapters, at the end of chapter 22 in Genesis, we have the offering of Isaac as a burnt offering, and then the Lord provides himself as the sacrifice. And at the end of the chapter, there's this little segue that seems to be out of place where the Lord gives us through the writer. It says, after it came to pass in verse 20 of chapter 22, after these things that it was told Abraham saying, indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother, Nahor, who is his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. So that's the son of Nahor, and Bethuel begot. The only descendant we find out from Bethuel is who? Rebekah. Not a coincidence. And so here we have, she says, I am from the family of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and enough feed and room to lodge you. Then the man bowed down his head and he worshiped the Lord. And over and over throughout this narrative that we're going to see multiple times, he stops in the middle of his real everyday in time life. And he does what? He bows down he prostrates himself before the Lord and he says, thank you, Lord. Which is why earlier when the TV screen worked, I stopped and said, thank you, Lord. And this morning when we were moving the microphone so it wouldn't pop like it did last week and it actually worked, I stopped and said, thank you, Lord. And I think the Christian life is to be led by the Holy Spirit. Eleazar is a picture of the Holy Spirit, the servant of the Father, going out to get a bride for his son, Jesus. And all along the way, the Holy Spirit is nudging you to be thankful, to see God's provision, and stop even over the weirdest things and say, I see your hand in this, Lord, thank you. Let it never be said of us that we're not looking for God's daily and moment-by-moment -moment provision and then being thankful for it. I believe it would totally change our countenance among those who don't know the Lord if we would just simply be thankful. In the moment, stop, even audibly, before non-believers and say, thank you, Lord, I needed that. Because it brings God right into the real everyday occurrence. People oftentimes are saying, where's God in all of this? Well, he's there. We're just not recognizing him and calling it for what it is. We're going, man, that was lucky. Or man, what a happy coincidence. Bull hockey. Thank you, Lord. You're so good. I don't deserve the least of your presence in my life. And yet you helped me fix the TV screen. Thank you. 
He, didn't, he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to answer Eleazar's prayer. He can whisper to Eleazar and go, hey, doofus, it's her. He could, but he doesn't. He gently leads us like a shepherd leads his sheep. And he never gets annoyed at having to lead us by our simple and crazy ways that we ask him to. We look at the story of Gideon in the book of Judges, and he goes over and over. He goes, okay, Lord, if the fleece is dry in the morning with no dew, then I'll know it's you. Okay, that was good, but maybe if we lay it, and we often look at that and go, that's just the way to discern the will of the Lord. I think that's the Lord putting up with our shenanigans seeking a sign. Jesus even said, a wicked and a perverse generation seeks a sign. And yet Lord, the Lord just, he comes down to our level and he's willing. He's willing to reward every little step of faith. And Eleazar here is rewarded. And he stops, he bows himself physically to the ground. When was the last time you bowed yourself under the authority of God and said, thank you, Lord, on your knees? And yet he does, and, and he worships the Lord, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy, his compassion, his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. And so we see here all of these things taking place, and the Lord being faithful so now we get to meet the parents. Every young man or young woman's favorite thing, meet the parents. They've made movies about it to make fun of the case that it's awkward. And yet Eleazar the servant goes before Isaac and gets to do it for him. And it says, now Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. And we'll find out about him later. And Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist. And when he heard the words of his sister, Rebekah, saying, thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well, and he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and place for the camels. Then the man, <coughs> excuse me, then the man came to the house and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat. And he said, I will not eat until I've told about my errand. And so the man says, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly. He has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was very old. And to him, he has given all that he has. So Isaac's the one who will inherit Abraham's riches. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house, to my family, and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you, and prosper your way, and you shall take a wife for my son, and this is added from the last time we heard this, from my family and from my father's house. You will be clear from this oath when you arrive before my family, for if they will not give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. And this day I came to the well and said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will now prosper the way in which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water and say to her, please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And she says to me, drink and I will draw from your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed, chosen ahead of time for my master's son. But before I had finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca. See, he's just testifying to the thing that already took place. So we can, number one, in the moments where we see God's hand, we can stop and thank him. Lord, thank you for this moment. 
But I think there's another piece. I think we also need to testify. We need to recount God's favor. We need to recount how he specifically worked. For some of you, you're gonna be journalers. Write those things down, and then a year later, don't just read them for yourself, but then, and worship, do that. But then read it to your family. This is how God worked in the past. I know he's been faithful. I know he's brought us to this place. These are Ebenezer's. These are rocks of, an Ebenezer would be a rock that you'd set on your land and remember where a thing took place. And then every time you see that rock, go back to it and say, this is where the rock moved in my life and and testify. But before I'd finished verse 45, speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder and she went down to the well and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. And she made haste and let her pitcher down from her shoulder and said, drink and I will give your camels a drink also. So I drank and she gave the camels a drink also. Then I asked her and said, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists. And I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master, Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. He wasn't overlooking the fact that the parents have to give their blessing. He wasn't forcing their hand. He was just like, are you willing? I've told you what I know. Are you willing? Then Laban, her brother, and Bethuel, her dad, answered and said, the thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. So Eleazar recognizes the hand of God in it. So does Rebekah. So does Laban. So does Bethuel. And here is Rebekah before you take her and go and let her be your master's son's wife as the Lord has spoken so verse 52 it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard their words that he worshiped the Lord bowing himself to the earth again he takes a moment he doesn't rush through it he savors it and he thanks God for what he has done then the servant verse 53, brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold and clothing, gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning and said, send me away to my master. So these are gifts given to the bride's family as a dowry, demonstrating his financial ability to provide for her. And, and by the way, uh, if you want a practical way to decide whether or not you should marry someone or whether or not your child should have your blessing in marrying someone, uh, they should have a J-O-B. And they should be able to keep a J-O-B. And while God will provide practically and spiritually in other ways, uh, it's, it's an easy way. It's like a dipstick to tell if you got enough oil in the motor. Uh, is this thing going to keep running? Does he have a J-O stinking B? And you might think, well, that's not very romantic. Well, guess what? Neither is not being able to provide for your family. And Thessalonians teaches that if you can't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. And so uh, get a stinking J-O-B, men, and you will be marryable. And so he says, um, he gives gifts which is wonderful because when the Lord takes his bride, he gives gifts. It's a down payment, but not to buy the person, but he gives spiritual gifts to his church for the building up and the strengthening of the body of Christ. And 1 Corinthians chapter 14 even says that these gifts are to be a sign. The body of Christ should exercise the spiritual gifts that they've been given. And as they exercise them properly and decently and in order, guess what? If there's ever any unbelievers amongst us, as you exercise your gifts, they will be convicted of their sin and brought to the knowledge that God's real and he's active in your lives. 
And so these gifts that he gives to the family of Rebekah are gifts that are given to show that he's going to provide. But notice also, the bride has not yet seen Isaac, nor the father Abraham, and yet with the servant's words and the gifts, she's persuaded that she will be taken care of. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, it says there, though having not seen the father or the son, yet in your spirit you love him. That's a sign that the spirit has quickened you to eternal life, that though you haven't seen the son, unless some of you in here have seen him, though you haven't seen the father visibly, and yet you love him, just like Rebecca Though she hasn't seen the son, her husband-to-be, nor has she seen the father, her father-in-law-to-be, and yet she loves Isaac. Not because of what he looks like, not because of the way that he treats her, but because she's betrothed to him, and therefore she loves him. She's making a decision to love him before anything is ever done. Her family desires that she delay her going, though. Verse 55, but her brother and mother said, let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least 10 after these things, she may go. But Eleazar said to them, do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away so that I may, I may go to my master. Interesting. If this is a picture of salvation, a bride, the church being brought forth to her husband, Jesus, if salvation is the picture, what we're seeing in the Old Testament, a type of salvation, then when the Lord calls someone to repentance and salvation, the world around them, even their family, will say, hey, don't be so hasty. Stay with us for a time. Don't respond so quickly. You've got so much life to live. Why don't you wait until you get older and, and time goes on? Maybe you've got some doubts. Do you really want to rush in? Don't fools rush in? And yet when it comes to salvation, today is the acceptable day of salvation. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. And so the world will always tell you, why don't you just wait a little longer? You've got, you'll be, you've got plenty of time, but you don't know that. And that's not a preacher trick, that's truth. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Hey, if 2020 showed us anything, we don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know how the world's gonna change. We don't know how accepted believers will be anymore. We don't even know what's going to happen. 221 is not the safest road on the world. My driving's not the best, and I'm on it with you. You know, uh, so all that to say, uh, the Spirit would always say to the person on the fence, do not hinder me. Since the Lord has prospered my way and shown you my goodness, Send me away so that I may go to my master. So they said, we will call the young woman and see what she says. We're going to ask her personally. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, like the bride of Christ will say, I will go confidently. And so they went, sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men, and they blessed Rebecca and said to her a blessing that resonates with Genesis 22, God's blessing and his promise to Abraham. Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands, of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them, which is also what it says in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. So <clears throat> the spirit says, come, and the bride responds and agrees with the spirit and says, come, come to the father, come to the son. And so Rebecca responds that she's ready to go with the servant to her bridegroom. And that takes faith, ladies and gentlemen, it had to. And so verse 61 then Rebecca and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. Imagine that, the, the bride, the picture of the church, following the way, the Holy Spirit, back to the Son. That's life. As a believer, we follow the guiding of the Holy Spirit, and our destination is the Son, the S-O-N, our groom. And so... Uh, so the servant took Rebekah and departed. And Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahai Roy, for he dwelt in the south. 
And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and he looked, and there the camels were coming. And then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel, for she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And we all, when we see the groom face to face, with unfail, he will unveil us before our, our groom, our Savior, that Jesus himself will see him face to face and there will be tears. It actually says in scripture that every tear will be wiped away and, and we'll know him just as we are also known by him. And so it says here that the servant says, it is my master. So she took a veil and she covered herself. She wants to unveil herself before him. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. But notice we don't get a retelling of the story again because we don't want to delay the suspense any longer. Then Isaac brought her into his mother's Sarah's tent, who he had been grieving, and he took Rebekah and she became one with him. She became his wife and he loved her so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I don't know about you guys, but Hollywood is trying to make stories up that are as good as this. It, to me, this is one of the most beautiful love stories I've ever read. And yet what I want to point out is that many of us would look at this love story and go, well, that's not me because I'm not Rebecca. I'm not a virgin. I'm not pure. I'm not prepared. I'm not ready to see the Father. I don't have the faith that it takes to go 30 days away. And, and, and I don't know, I can't relate to this story. Maybe you can relate a little bit better because our groom, our bridegroom, as the Bible calls it, is Jesus. And Jesus, when he came to the earth looking for a bride, he didn't come looking for perfection. He came to the broken. When Jesus came, he did like he did for the woman at the well. The, the Holy Spirit, Eleazar, went to the well, right? And he looked for a woman who would come at the time of day when respectful women would come. And yet in John chapter 4, Jesus Christ showed up at the well looking for a Samaritan woman. And he showed up looking for a specific Samaritan woman. He showed up looking for this woman. And if you've seen the Chosen series, you know what I'm talking about. But in John chapter 4, he didn't go in the evening when, when young women would come to draw water. He went at noonday where no respectful woman would go, where a woman would only go to avoid being around her peers because she was unclean and everybody knew it. And she was living in shame, avoiding being around people that would call it out. And so in John chapter 4, if you want to turn with me, in verse 3, Jesus comes looking for a bride in an unexpected place. John chapter four, verse three says that Jesus left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. Sound familiar? It was about the sixth hour, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Would you please give me a drink? Again, sound familiar? For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. This was a one-on-one. -on -one. And the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew a clean person in our eyes, ask a drink from me, a, mong a mongrel, a mutt, a mixed marriage Samaritan. For Jews have no dealings with us Samaritans. So Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well's deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? 
And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor have to come here any more to draw it. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. So Jesus reveals himself to this woman and he's getting ready to expose something that she's not comfortable with, by the way. He says, go get, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said. And he begins to reveal things about her that only she and her neighbors would know. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. So she's being honest about her sin. And Jesus is not exposing it to make her feel condemned. Jesus is exposing it so she can be healed. He loves her. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped, and then she begins to talk about religious stuff. She, she starts talking about going to church. She starts talking about things that have nothing to do with her. She's gotten a little sensitive. But Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Recognize that he's just told her all things that no one else knew about her. He has told her all things. And he says to her, I who speak to you am he. Many people say that Jesus never said he was God. In this verse, he just said, I am the Messiah. I am God. I'm the one who is to come. And so in the meantime, Jesus' disciples come back. This woman's had this one-on-one -on -one experience. They come back and they see him talking to her. And no doubt they're repulsed. How could you talk to this woman? She's a Samaritan. She's unclean. And Jesus says, I had something to do while they were in town. And then in verse 39, excuse me, I, I zoomed ahead too much. Verse 27, at this point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with such a woman. Yet one said, what do you seek? Yet not one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? And the woman then left her water pot, went into the city. Perhaps she was a little bit discouraged by the disciples. And she said to the men of the city, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Just like Rebecca saying, could this be true that the, this is supposed to be my husband? And then they went out of the city and they came to him. And fast forward in the passage, it says, verse 39, because of what she said, verse 39 says, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. I don't know about you guys. I don't want to tell anybody all that I ever did before Jesus. And I would venture to say many of you might be cringing at even the thought of your stuff being known by all. And yet she went and said, hey, here's the guy that knows all my sin. Do you believe that that could be the message? that we could go into the world and say, hey, I want you to meet the guy that knows all my sin. But then also, I want you to meet the guy that knows all my sin and, and he died for it and he loves me anyway. Wow, that's powerful. That's the message, folks. You're not gonna convince anybody any other way. Come meet the man that knows my sin. I love him because he first loved me. And I can't explain why, but I want you to know because he knows all your sin and that, that's not to condemn you. Jesus knows every one of your sins. 
And that's scary until you realize that he knows them so that he can forgive them. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own words. They, she brought many more to Jesus than any other holy person did. And then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So Father, we thank you that you have known us more deeply than anyone else can, and you love us anyway. And you made a way for every sin that you know about, not just the ones that we confess, but the ones that we don't. You made a way for us to be reconciled to you. You don't sweep sin under the rug. You don't call it a mistake or oops. You call it sin. And yet this is the condemnation that men love darkness rather than light. And yet when the light comes and exposes our darkness, we are free. And so Lord Jesus, this morning, as I'm even overwhelmed by the thing you've got me saying, Lord Jesus, would you please help those who are here that may or may not know you expose their sin, reveal to them your great, deep love for them, the, the love that, that pinned you to the cross. No man can take my life, Jesus said. I lay it down on purpose. And he, just like Ephesians 5 says, that just as we are to love our bride, just like Jesus loves the church, and we think, oh, well, yeah, he loves the church because we're cleaned up, but no, you laid down your life, not because we deserved it, but because we needed it. So thank you, Father, for that great love. And thank you for your willingness to show up at our well where we think we can draw water from and say, that well's gonna leave you thirsty. You need to drink from living water. Lord, anybody here today who is quickened by that message, I pray that the Spirit is saying, come, let not anyone delay. Today is the acceptable day of salvation. Thank you for the gift. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.